This is the Life-Changing Conversations podcast, brought to you by Neil Shah, Chief De-Stressing Officer at the Stress Management Society and produced by Change Your World Events. Join in the conversation by visiting our LCC podcast Facebook page. Like, comment, share, and tell us what you think. Welcome to Life-Changing Conversations. And this week we're celebrating 15 years of the Stress Management Society. The organization I founded back in 2003 after my own life-changing experience. So today I'm handing over the presenter reins to my good friend and colleague Duncan Risco. So I can share my personal story and give you a bit of a background on how we ended up here today. So Duncan, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your role here at the Stress Management Society. This is the Stress Management Society. We'll come to your office and we'll make you happy. We'll take a look at your employees and everybody will end up being friendly. Yep, that's what I do. I'm the man in the corner, just making fun of Neil all day long. Anyway, uh, hello, uh, my name's Duncan. I am Chief Innovation, Happiness and Creativity Officer or something. I've been at the Stress Management Society for four years now. And uh, I'm often Neil, I'm the longest serving member. Uh, so what do I do? I, I, I'm involved pretty much in everything. So every time a project comes in, it comes to me and I do an investigation, I do some detective work. We think about a strategy for a company or an organization or an individual, and then we help them implement that strategy. So that's what we do. We are there to improve lives. That's what we are here for. So uh, today I've been given a uh, I've been given a remit. My remit as a longest-serving member of the Stress Management Society is to sit here and let Neil talk. Now there's a couple of things that he can't do. Today he can't go into sales spiel. He can't go into robotic answers. And every time he does, I'm going to intervene, and it's going to sound a little like this. Not having it. Not having it. So are we are going to talk about the 15-year uh, history of the Stress Management Society. We're going to talk about why Neil set this up and where he sees the future of the Stress Management Society. So yeah, I want to start by saying that there are elements of my story that I only actually started sharing publicly only a few years ago. And it was um, when our very own producer, life-changing conversation producer Susie Beaumont, convinced me to share the deeper, darker depths of my story. And it was something I did find uncomfortable. Um, it's not something that, as um, Duncan was talking about, sort of, you know, spent a lot of my time sharing the things that I was comfortable talking about professionally. Um, the want of a better description, kind of the sales pitch version of the story. Um, but there was some, some, some depths to it, which I was more comfortable keeping hidden. And I realized that actually, what I was promoting is that there are certain things that we should keep in the closet, but the reality is we shouldn't hide mental health um, and then it shouldn't be stigmatized. And I was doing exactly that. So it was time for me to get out of my comfort zone. And that's what I did when uh, Susie first asked me to speak at a Change Your World conference. And that's what I'm doing today by sharing my story in full. So that's where I get to hand over to Duncan and let him take charge which is not something i find um, easy or comfortable but i'm hoping that you'll enjoy today's life-changing conversation which is mine and the stress man society's 15 year story over to you Dunk. okay so that's a good word story and everybody does have a story 
So we're here at the 15 year anniversary, but really, uh, let's take you, let's take us even further back than that. So 20 years ago, 20 years ago today, 1998, what did that look like? So 1998 is when I started my my first business. I was 24 years old. Um, it was an IT recruitment business. Uh, and I started that because I had about six months of experience in the recruitment industry, um, working for two companies, got sacked from the first one after three months because they said I was too nice for the recruitment industry. And the second one did extremely well. After three months, I was one of their top salespeople. Um, and after having a bit of a falling out with the the director of that company, um, I decided that it was time for me to go off and do my own thing. And with no planning, no foresight, I literally left that job one Friday and decided over that weekend I was going to start my own business. And the Monday morning, I uh, started trading in un- under my own steam. And um, so that was a business completely different to what we're doing now. This absolutely. Was- well, so we are we we are in a people business. That's what we're doing. So, what kind of business were you in there? Uh, I guess it was people, but it was more a body shop. Um, and when I say body shop, I'm not talking about like you know mechanics. It was more like selling bodies for a living. Quite literally, bringing in people from different parts of the world, from places like Australia and South Africa, um, and place them into projects in Europe and the Middle East, and. Um, doing very well with it. You know, high level individuals used to get paid a lot of money and I'd get a good commission off of placing them. So money, commission, mm-hmm. good few years of doing that. Sales, yeah. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> did very well. First year we turned over 700 grand and took it to more than a million turnover. I had uh, set up an office in South Africa, won the Shell Livewire Young Entrepreneur of the Year Awards, got nominated for uh, the DTI Queens of All for um, for export. Had so this very salesy, very money driven. Very money driven. Made a lot of money. Quite a departure from where you are now. Yeah, it was a different world. It was a different life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen Wolf of Wall Street, that basically was me. Uh, uh, in all aspects of of, of that movie, from uh, yeah, you know, success, money, cars, fast life. Lots of alcohol, lots of drugs. Yeah, it was a very decadent lifestyle. And I did that because it was an ego trip. You know, I was young, I was successful, I was having a good time. And every aspect of that lifestyle absolutely fueled my ego. Interesting. So, wow, surely it should have gone on forever. Should have. But like most parties, it's got to come to an end eventually. And yeah, and when it did, the walls came crashing down pretty quick. In a very short period of time, it all went horribly wrong. And I think the big lesson I learned from that is when you're on a path that doesn't lead you to your destiny, the universe has a way of giving you a bit of a baseball bat around the head. Um, all right, so what, what does that look like? So you've got, you've got the girlfriend, you've got the, got the money, got the, got the car. I understand you went up to 10 Downing Street a couple of times. Entre- young entrepreneur of the, of the year. That's mm-hmm. easier to win than <clears> say. Yeah, <laughs> so I had breakfast right. with Tony Blair at number 10 Downing Street. I'm not proud of that, now knowing what we know about him now. But, you know, when you're like 25 and you're in number 10 Downing Street, you know, it was, it was a different world. It, 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 it was um, quite surreal, you know, in Kensington Roof Gardens every Friday and Saturday night, private booth. Bottles of champagne and vodka waiting for me. Um, so that was VIP that treatment. was what you were kind of aspiring to: was the the show, the money, yeah. the lifestyle. It was walking into a bar and buying the most expensive bottle of champagne because I could, and 
you know it was yeah it was a show fast car fast lifestyle yeah things changed dot-com bubble burst September 11 2001 happened um, I kind of built a business that was set up for the good times not necessarily when things got a bit more difficult so we had to change and adapt what we were doing and I guess I had a lot of people around at the time that weren't the right people for when we needed to really knuckle down I'd made some pretty poor choices yeah which led to some real challenging times where I started to experience a lot of stress uh, and couldn't sleep at night was uh, not eating, lost a lot of weight, couldn't focus at work, was angry, frustrated, relationships were suffering, drinking quite a bit. And yeah, I just found that things started to unravel pretty quickly. I couldn't resolve those issues, you know, regardless of how hard I tried. And eventually got to the point where I had to put my hand up and say, I can't do this anymore. Um, which resulted in voluntarily putting the business into liquidation. So. What kind of timescales for this? Because, you know, the one minute, you know, 98 to, you know, 2001, that's good for three, four years of good times. You know, walking into places and buying the best bottle of champagne to then putting it into liquidation. What are we talking here? Yeah, so I think the, the, it started to unravel sort of towards the end of 2002 and by 2003, so early 2003, it was, yeah. It's quick. Proverbial shit hit the fan. Yeah, and it, it was it was starting to go in that direction, but kind of when it all went wrong, it all went wrong pretty quickly. Okay, and it was there was it wasn't just the business in that period of time. Essentially, what happened is I found out the person I was in a relationship was cheating on me. Uh, the business unravelled, um, and then when that happened, obviously lost all my money, car repossessed, uh, business gone. And most of the people I thought were my closest friends turned their back on me as well. So, so everything that I defined myself by, you know, my friends, my relationship, my you know physical goods, car, business, etc., everything disappeared. The only thing that really I had left to define me by was was my family, and it's kind of really hard, you know, in a three four month period that everything just disintegrates, and yeah, it hit me really hard. There wasn't much depth there, so it was, you know, it was show, it was surface. Even, even, you know, you told me that you used to fly to New York every week. Yeah, so the 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 person I was in a relationship with, um, she used to live in New York, and it, there was a period where literally it was like every weekend I'd be on a plane out to New York to visit her, and then she moved over here. And obviously that's when things start to really unravel. So I'm in a new relationship with someone that's moved to a new country um, where she's going through her own tough time. And I'm obviously then now starting to have a very difficult time in my professional life as well, as well as in my personal life with my friends. And it was just like everything fell to pieces in a short period of time. And all of this is still in your 20s. Yeah, it was like twenty. We've all seen the. You know, it's a classic story, isn't it? So you know, we've all seen the films like this. That you know, uh, young lad makes good, and you, then there's like a bit of a montage where he gets better clothes. He then gets the car. He then gets the house. He then gets the the woman, and etc. etc. And then something happens. So you know, I, I know what most people were like in their twenties. All right on the front. All right with uh, blagging and uh, all right with mouth, but what about when times were hard and you had to become a bit more resilient? Yeah, um, 
I guess the reason I became quite a good salesperson or I kind of developed the, the gift of blagging, if you like, was it was a survival mechanism. I was the, the short fag kid at school and I used to get bullied and um, I found, you know, particularly at that age, I didn't have any other means or abilities to navigate out of those tough situations. And I found that I could talk my way out of situations. I could talk my way in out of pretty much anything. And I found that, that was a real gift and it helped me to navigate some of the most difficult sort of times, particularly growing up in West London where it, you know, it could have been a bit rough. There were some, some kind of hairy moments in my childhood, particularly being bullied. Um, and the, the, the ability to talk my way in and out of situations became a survival mechanism. Um, the challenge was though that you you could kind of put on that front like everything's okay and talk your way in and out of situations but that also meant that there was oftentimes you'd avoid facing the emotional aspects of the things you were experiencing and yeah so it just meant that there was this great front and i put on the show and um you know, make out like everything was okay and I'm the life and soul of the party, I'm the person everyone wants to have around. But yeah, I never really got to sit with the fact that there were, there were deeper aspects to my life that were troubling for me. And in a way that I used the lifestyle, the drugs, the alcohol, partying, women, all that kind of stuff as a, a way just to kind of mask and make myself feel good about myself. Um, but it's like with any other addiction and as long as it keeps coming and you keep, you know, using whatever substance uh, it is that brings you pleasure, you're fine. But the moment it dries up, you realize there's a big black hole there that can't be filled no matter what you put into it, whether it's food or drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever. We're now in 2003 and uh, the, the company has been wound up and uh, you can't cover up with any of those things because you just simply can't do it. And you said that now you wanted some help. Well, I think initially I was like, mm, I think I need some help. And I went to the GPs and basically in a couple of minutes said, oh, it's like a computer that's got too many applications running and you just need a reboot. And here's some pills that are going to help you to reboot. And I kind of knew enough to know that that wasn't the answer. In the latter days of running my old business, um, the, I had taken on the responsibility of, of developing my staff and you know, training and developing my people was really important. That's where I'd first come across NLP, Neuro, Neuro Linguistic Programming. It, something that really piqued my interest, particularly when running sales teams, is knowing that there's a strategy that can really help them to kind of find their groove, if you like, to, to, to kind of kick into that that place where you're on fire as a salesperson or a sportsperson where you can kind of really maximize your potential. So when sitting with the GP and he's giving me antidepressants, I knew enough to know that wasn't the answer. And I was like, I'm better than this and I can fix this. And I, I took the prescription part. You know, I actually went to the chemist and got the pills, didn't take them. And I was just like, I can fix this. And the, the more I couldn't fix it, because it was just like there's this alarm going off in your head 24-7. Yeah, but the GP has got very limited absolutely limited well, options with you, you I, know, whatever she however long she's got with you she's going to get the the referral path there's not much open well um, you've got to bear in mind this is in 2003 Even whatever much. pathways that we've got today there was a fraction of those in those days i didn't know what i know today 
them. So it's okay, you know, they, they've got a couple of minutes with you, they don't really have much options and they're kind of limited in, in, in terms of what they can plug you into. Um, I actually walked away from that GP appointment feeling worse than I did before I walked in, but I knew enough to know that the pills weren't the answer. But I think because I'd had some experiences with NLP and I'd been off a, a Tony Robbins fire walking course and this, that and the other. And in fact, in hindsight, I'm now starting to realise actually that those courses can be quite damaging for people that are in a, a seriously compromised place. Because they kind of show you that this is wonderful, rah, rah, everything's great experience. And I'm just going to be clear, I'm not here to diminish um, you know, the work that those kind of people do. That, that's great for a lot of people. But I found that actually for me it made me feel worse because it was just like, I should feel like this. This is how I used to feel and I can't get myself back there. And faced with the alternative of pills, it kind of, I found myself getting deeper into this vicious circle, just spiraling down further and further and actually getting really upset with myself that I can't fix myself, which actually made me feel worse than I did even before I started that whole process. So that slide continued for a while. However, you're in your 20s. Do you think you were in a position to be able to accept help? No, there's the bravado. There's kind of the male bravado, machismo, you know, I'm, I'm better than all this. And, you know, particularly the lifestyle I led there, which was about front. It's the, the even admitting the fact that you're compromised isn't an easy thing to do. So I guess even if... if credible help was offered I'm not sure how open I would have been to it I mean at that time as well you know um, your you other half had come over from America and she'd only known a successful Neil so there was there an element of having to uh, live up to a certain um, absolutely. front there as well no, absolutely it was still you know busting the credit cards just to maintain that lifestyle so now I'm flat broke with no income but I'm still doing my best to keep the front up and you know like literally doing it on tick, you know, building up like a huge debt just to continue with that bravado. And it came to a head and it got to a point where it's like, it was too much, you know, the, the systems were overloaded and the, the, that alarm bell in my head was just getting louder and louder and it was there 24 seven, couldn't sleep at night. And I'm in a tremendous amount of emotional pain. Um, and even when everything had gone wrong and even the relationship had gone wrong, I did my best to kind of at least try and hold on to the last few threads of that because it was the only thing from my old life that I still had the ability to keep hold of. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, that wasn't you know, working out, it got to the point where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of done. And quite literally, I was ready to check out. What does that mean? The, yeah, I was ready to seek out the ultimate permanent solution to a temporary problem and uh, as um, as we already spoke about that even though this happened 15 years ago 15 years ago this summer I only ever shared that for the first time in my life a year ago where Susie uh, convinced me to share it and it's where that bottle of pills that I'd got from the, the GP I, I decided to take the whole lot at once and I did bizarrely my ex turned up to collect something and found me there and I think she must have called my my, my dad and yeah then someone must have called an ambulance and the next thing I remember sort of waking up in hospital and had my stomach pumped and and interestingly though when, when you come around from an experience like that the first thing that happens is 
as soon as you're complus mentis, um, you'd have two police officers that take you into a, another room and have a chat with you. So, not mental health professional, not psychologist or psychiatrist or psychotherapist. So, it's a police officer. Their main job is to ascertain whether you're safe, um, whether you need to be sectioned. And that was really where it really hit home. And yeah, and then my parents basically forced me to go back and live with them for a bit, which I did. And it was then I've really found myself in probably the, the darkest place I've ever been, which is like, I'm a grown adult, whereas not that long ago, like I'm literally, on, I was on the front cover of a magazine, I'm like, you know, shooting for the stars, and now I'm back home in my parents' spare bedroom, and got literally had nothing left to live for, and sat there wallowing in misery for a while, and I just got to this point where I was just like, I can't do this anymore, I need to get back on top of the world again. Ultimately, that's what I did. Decided that I needed to go to the highest place I could think of, which was Mount Everest. And I had a cousin that was going out to the Himalayas. And yeah, uh, blagged myself onto his trip. Managed to, I had no money, so I had to raise the money. And it's not a cheap trip as well. Um, but when I have a mission, there's very little that can stand in between me and fulfilling that mission. and. Yeah, I've managed to ring around some of my corporate contacts and managed to get someone to sponsor me the full amount of money. I just had to carry a flag. Um, and it was Business Link for London that sponsored me and they gave me a flag that says, I got to the top of the world and Business Link for London helped me to get there. And um, they paid for the whole trip, queried a check round, queried his flag round, spent a couple of months training in the gym every day, you know, doing four or 5,000 calorie workouts. And, and it was William Blake that said, where men and mountains meet, strange things happen that don't happen when you're adjusting in the street and that, that kind of environment has a way of simplifying your life don't think about money and cars and relationships and friends you kind of think about getting to camp in the evening and keeping yourself together very leveling experience so um yeah i would say that you know before uh before that you're living your life externally defining yourself externally and when all the friends went, all the money went, all the trinkets went, you then had to define yourself internally. And the first instance of that was setting yourself a goal that wasn't about show, it was about getting somewhere and trying to find something. Setting yourself a goal and achieving it. It's Edmund Hillary that says, it's not the mountain we conquer, it's ourselves. And if you'd asked me before 2003, that would be like, yeah, that's a nice quote. I really got to understand what that means because um, most people live their life externally without realizing that there's a mountain within themselves that most people never really forget conquer they don't even face they don't even acknowledge and uh, every step i took on that mountain was a step into uh, myself and, and also deeper into the universe and i guess there was a part of that story which I didn't even anticipate what happened when I went out there. I, I didn't really grow up in a religious household. Religion in my house growing up was Liverpool Football Club. My dad, Roger, as you know him, was a diehard Liverpool fan. So that, that, that was what he worshipped. And that's kind of football was, was the religion in our house. 
and I guess by the time I was like in you know in my late teens, early twenties, I was pretty much an atheist. I didn't really believe in God, um, and yeah, religion for me was party drugs and Jack Daniels basically. And I kind of found myself on the mountain, Mount Everest. It may have been oxygen deprivation. It may have been my brain going into a trippy, altered, psychedelic type state because of the lack of oxygen. But I kind of had a couple of very deep, profound experiences which could only be described as spiritual epiphanies where literally I'm having a full-blown conversation with, with the spirit of the mountain as I'm having a conversation with you today, a couple of which had me kind of on my hands and knees crying my eyes out for hours. And these really profound realizations that everything that I've experienced up until that point had all been a gift. Starting to look at these experiences as opportunities for me to be able to to grow and develop. And it's where I had this idea, this kind of notion that this gift, I can do something with it. I can help other people. And that's where the idea of the stress man society first popped into my head. I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like or what that would do. Why did you decide it was stress? I mean, if the doctors prescribed you antidepressants, why not the, the Depression Management Society or anything like that? Yeah, it's a good point. Why not depression, suicide? Well, I guess because I hadn't admitted the depths of my mental health until very recently. Uh, it's, it's easy to kind of hang it on the stress hook because it's a bit more palatable. As much as it's still not something that a lot of us are comfortable admitting, it took me 14 years to publicly admit that I'd attempted to take my own life. It was probably around then that I first started to really accept that I'd gone into quite a deep state of depression. Before that, I was perfectly happy talking about the fact that I got stressed because it didn't mean that I had to go to the depths of my own despair, if that makes sense. And I realised that if that was my experience, if I wasn't comfortable going there, how many other people out there are not comfortable going to really sort of how dark their experience has become whereas even then in 2003 people were a little bit more comfortable talking about stress less so than they are today but it was more palatable and easier to engage someone in a discussion around stress than around depression or mental Do, health doesn't that probably reflect your own understanding of it as well because stress as you and i know is more of a symptom rather than a cause uh, Absolutely. Along, along with you know depression is a symptom i think um, there, there are underlying causes about how these things present. So is that why you, you thought it was the stress management society? Yeah, probably. But it, I, I guess it was where I was comfortable going with with the conversation. But also, I didn't come into this with an academic background or a professional background. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professor. I hadn't studied or researched stress. You know, obviously, I know a lot about it now. But that's 15 years of, of experience and, mm-hmm. uh, and research and, and reading and educating myself. At that time, I'm coming in cold. I'm coming off the back of a, a deed, personal experience. A deed on the side of a mountain. But basically, yeah, a dude on the side of a mountain that's just had an experience. It's like, right, I'm going to change the world. So you're, you're in Everest, at Everest. Long way home. Yeah, uh, it's a longer way home than it is on the way out, to be honest. You know, they say more people die on the way down from Everest than on the way up because they use all their energy to get to the top and they don't realise when you get to the top, it's only half the journey. And and it was the way back where you kind of really have to dig deep. It's like, I've got to go back and face reality. And, you know, 
going to the supermarket and um, talk to people and kind of really try and reintegrate yourself back to society. It's easy there because life is simple. So I kind of came back and I did come back a bit of a sound aware and hippie, I'll be honest with you. It's like, yeah, money's the root of all evil and I hate money and I'm going to change the world. And for those that are old enough to remember, I came back a bit of a kind of came from Kung Fu where wandering from town to town trying to help people, minus the Kung Fu, because I wasn't any good at that. Um, or another way of looking at it is like a human version of Lassie. It was great, you know, like I had a dog in a, with a bone in the mouth and running around trying to help people, but not really making a huge amount of difference. I know I had these kind of big aspirations to really change the world, but had a few little bits of coaching work here and there and some low-level funded projects from European Social Fund running little programs for small businesses and, you know, working with companies like Business Link and the local enterprise agency. And did that for a good few years. Um, it was fine. It gave me an opportunity to really cut my teeth, but I really wasn't making much of a difference. So uh, that's the first few years of the stress mm, management side. Operating from my back bedroom, going mm -hmm. out, running a few bits here and there. And yeah, it, it was good because I get, gave, gave myself a lot of opportunity to learn and really understand what I was dealing with. Bad because I couldn't pay my own bills. I couldn't support myself really. I was constantly in that state of survival, which wasn't really good for, for, for my own uh, uh, mental emotional state. So you've come back with a purpose and it's about the journey. And that is key to pretty much anything that mm. you start with why. Why are you going to do this? What's the journey for the Stress Management Society? It's literally to change the world. It always has been. It was never a, a small idea. It was, you know, that, that initial mission statement to create a happier, healthier, more resilient world. And what does that actually mean? It's like this at the time in 2003 was a big issue. There's a lot of people, this is where kind of you know, the yuppies and their mobile phones were throwing themselves off the top of the buildings when the dot-com bubble burst. And and people thought that was just a sign of times and things would change. And nearly you along with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I don't think anyone could have foretold how bad things were going to get. And we roll the clock forward 15 years later, and the problem is significantly worse today than it was then. And there was something compelling me and calling me to do this. And I, I didn't know, I couldn't predict how bad things would get. And also when I started this journey, it was hard work. No one wanted to talk about it. It was a real low level thing. You'd knock on doors and people would like, I was viewed as a, a, you know, a young boy without the experience or the expertise to be doing what I was doing. And I was, I was dismissed. I was literally kind of, you know, had doors slammed on my face and was sent on my way by a lot of people. And it was that, that, that real desire to be able to make a big difference, not just a little difference, but I'm talking like a, a massive difference. Now, it took a long time for me to really formulate the way to be able to do that. So the first four or five years was you know, going nowhere particularly fast. But the reality is I did learn a lot during that period. And that's where it really helped me to understand that. Actually, my background was selling you know, corporate solutions to large organizations you know that worth hundreds of thousands of pounds and I could apply that same approach and the expertise I gained doing that to a subject that I actually cared about and that's where we started to develop kind of commercial aspects of, of what we do at the Stress Man Society 
And that's when things really started to change because I realized that I get a buzz from that. Like it's, it's something that I really enjoy. I guess I am a salesperson. And in the past I was selling products that made money and I was excited about making money. But now I could sell things and it wasn't products as such, it was ideas, concepts. It was like running training sessions and speaking at conferences and selling things that were gonna benefit whoever bought them that could potentially change their lives or their organizations. And I got a buzz because every time that I did sell something in, I knew that it would make a difference. And it wasn't you know, the, the, the amount of zeros on the invoice, but it was the fact that there was 10, 100, 50, 1,000 people that were gonna benefit from going through that process. And that really, really inspired me. And that's where things started to grow. And eventually we moved into our first office and you know, started to hire people. And yeah, it, 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 it got to a point where I'd wake up in the morning and I was super excited and passionate to get out of bed and go into work and, and travel as well. Even from the early days, we were getting projects in different parts of the world with big companies like Shell, traveling out or out throughout Europe. And you know, getting out of bed and traveling the world, doing something that you could happily do for free. Um, the, the fact that you're getting paid to do it was just a bonus. The Japanese call this concept Ikigai, where your purpose, your passion, your profession, your very reason for existence all coincide. And you are literally living your purpose. You're, you're, you're on path to your destiny. And very much felt like I was on that. And as hard as it got, and, there were times where it was just like, well, Neil, why are you doing this? There was early days I remember being offered a job that was paying 100 grand a year. At that point, I was barely putting 15 grand in my own bank. Um, and I'm being paid a job that would have literally just, you know, from a financial perspective, changed everything. And I got really close to accepting it. And at the last minute, I turned it down because it just, I knew that this was taking away from why I'm here. We all have a purpose. We all have a reason for being here, but most people get so distracted by the day-to-day -day drudgery of life that we never stop to pay attention to what's really important to us. And I'm really lucky and blessed that the universe took it upon itself to give me a baseball bat around the head and continues to give me baseball bats around the head when, when I get off path to ensure that I stay on the path that takes me to wherever it is that I need to go. Yeah, that, that's the ideal, and that is why we do what we do. But you're now sat in front of a, a CEO of a financial institution that's telling you you're, you're full of it. What, how are you going to convince him? Why do, why do we do what we do? Because they, they won't buy that. Because it works. Because I've got 15 years worth of data to prove that it works. That we literally train thousands of people every year and 98.7% of them, according to our own data, have given us good or excellent feedback. That we've got hundreds of companies from around the world that have been through this process of culture change that you know have yielded massive benefit. But more than that, like I've got a bunch of people here in this office that turn up for work every day and as they're inspired as I am to be able to make a difference, that there are you know, thousands of people that access our content, millions of people that come to our website, the people that listen to, to our podcast, that it's, it's great to know that there are people that positively benefit from, from the work that you do. This is not, and it never has been about the money, it's about the fact that we get to make a positive difference and there are people that will benefit from that. And 
for, to our detriment, it's never been about money. And one of the reasons it's probably taken us as long as it has to get to this point is we haven't really focused on that. Um, I think it's also a lesson as well. If you get called or pulled into that trap again, well, then you're exactly where you are in 2003, hmm. which is if that's what your goal and your motivation is, well, guess what? It will go away. Yeah, it ain't never going to happen because, firstly, I've got you guys to like constantly keep me grounded. And if that doesn't work, Susie is always there to cut me down a few pegs to make sure I never get too big for my boots. So there's no danger of that. So uh, let's go back to that, that board member. He's the CEO, and the CEO is telling you that there's no such thing as stress and it didn't, didn't, um, didn't exist in their day. So what, what's your response to that? So if you're saying to me stress doesn't exist, and ultimately we can deny it, that doesn't mean that it goes away. We have to bear in mind that in Britain today, 84 young men take their own life every week. I think it's 86. In addition to that, one in three people suffer from mental health conditions. Um, it is one of the biggest costs to UK PLC. Absenteeism, presenteeism, accidents, injuries, staff turnover, lost productivity, lost performance. Now, you can deny it all you, lo- all you want, but the data backs this up. Now, ultimately, you're saying to me that stress doesn't exist. Does the metrics match that? Would you be able to provide me the data to show you don't have a problem with these things? Because ultimately the data doesn't lie. And that's what I would want to understand. And if you don't have the data, well, we can perform an audit. We can we can take you through a process to really understand, is this something that's affecting what your business? Is it something that's costing you? And if not, wonderful, fantastic. We'd love to write a case study and share that with other people so they can model what you do. Mm-hmm. What is stress? How does it manifest itself? What is stress? That's a big question. What is stress to you, Duncan? For me, it's it's like creeping death. It's not like I'm fine one minute and then then the, there's a sea change and I'm I'm in a overly stressed state the next. It's a creeping death. I've either decided to ignore the signs and symptoms, or I've been so preoccupied with something else, and then I look around and I wonder why everyone's upset at me. Mm, interesting. So, podcast assistant Kaylee is also in the room. What is stress to you, Kaylee? Um, for me, I think stress is when I get to the point where I don't actually know how to deal with the situation. Um, like Duncan said, sometimes that comes out of nowhere. Like you've been so preoccupied that you don't actually realise that you're that stressed. I think that's the worst type for me. Mm-hmm. And for me, stress, high stress, is where there's an alarm bell going off in your head. You can't think about the bigger picture, completely oblivious to all the things that have fallen to pieces around you, can't focus, can't sleep at night. Now, the reason I wanted to ask all of you is because we're all talking about the same subject, but we have a very different perspective and a different take on it. A negative one too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I think, is a, an important thing to consider, that we'll all describe stress based on our own unique experiences of it. And we all also tend to associate with the feelings or the emotions of it, where the reality is it's not feeling or emotion at all. It's, it's a physical response. It's something that happens in our bodies. And the emotional manifestation is a byproduct of that. So this is a really important thing to consider. It's like every single one of us will have our own unique way of describing stress. And I literally, in the last 15 years, I've asked that question to hundreds of thousands of people. And everyone will offer their own unique approach to it, their own unique way of defining it. Um, 
And it doesn't help that the experts don't necessarily agree. You know, depending on who you're talking to, you get a different response. If you're speaking to health medical professionals, they'll have one particular analogy. If you speak to psych, you know, people in a psychology profession, they'll have a particular way of describing it, maybe using psychosocial models. People in the health and safety community have got different takes on it. Everyone's got a different, unique approach to it. And kids, it's up to us to understand how it affects us and how we react and respond to stress and what our unique experiences. So how does it affect you? Seeing as your chief de-stressing officer, surely, surely... Oh, I never get stressed. So it's an interesting thought because people often say, oh, people often expect that I never get stressed. Which is kind of like saying to a mechanic, I bet your car never breaks down, or saying to a doctor, I bet you never get ill. So yeah, I do get stressed just like everybody else. Uh, Just like the doctor gets ill and the mechanic's car breaks down, they recognise it and know what action's taken. It's the same for me. I recognise it earlier and I know what actions to take. And I know when I'm stressed because I'll be lying in bed thinking about things or I'll wake up at four o'clock in the morning with things running around in my head. Or it'll be a little thing. It'll be like a really minor thing and it just won't be able to let it go. And it'll be going over and over and over and over and over and over and over in my head. Um, but also, I, I have um, OCD. And there are certain uh, behaviours that tend to come out more severely when I'm stressed, like blood in my toothbrush is a clear sign, or my hands, the skin of my hands will start getting red and I'll get eczema on my hands because I'll find myself washing them, you know, dozens and dozens of times a day or over brushing my teeth. So there's certain things that will come up for me or it'll be little things that I'll blow out of all context and I'll end up like having a row with someone about the, the smallest of things. So what do you do about it? Exercise is really important for me. Um, my dog Nanook is a huge part of that. He's not only the chief happiness officer here at work, but he's my personal therapist. So we have a very long walk every morning. I am out for at least an hour in the morning with him, do some yoga, meditate, eat healthy, um, you know, in- ensuring I get time in nature and fresh air. Um, so, yeah, positive, healthy lifestyle aspects I think is really important. Okay, so um, thinking over the last 15 years, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've had over the last 15 years? Work perspective or just generally? Work, first of all. Um, so, so work that, I guess because we haven't been driven overtly commercially because it was never about the money, in times we've kind of struggled really and you know paying the bills and getting roof over the head and paying wages and stuff like that um so that's been really really stressful where you're kind of like how am i going to pay these bills and how i'm going to keep going and again without getting too spiritual it felt like there's been times there have been some divine intervention where like things have just happened or you know something's fallen into your lap to allow you to to keep going um but yeah, there have been times where I really question, like, am I doing the right thing? Am I supposed to be doing this? Is it supposed to be this difficult? Um, yeah, also as a small not-for-profit organisation, you know, attracting and keeping the best people uh, has been difficult. Um, mm, been you, you get them to up to a very high standard and then they go. Yeah, and then they take the knowledge and experience <laughs> yeah. elsewhere. Um, and it's kind of, you know, now become a bit more resilient to it. But in the past, I take it really personally. When someone left, it'd be like, it felt like I've been dumped in a personal relationship, you know, I'd be like heartbroken. There's a few people I remember, I was absolutely heartbroken. And, 
you know, a lot of these people like we, we have a really strong family environment so it's like you know someone's like you walking out on you kind of thing it's not just a, a job and because for me it's not just a job I do take things quite seriously and personally so that's been quite tough you talked about family and we do have a, a family feel here and you know the good side of that is that we care about each other the bad side about that is everybody has an opinion about everything that everybody else does yeah but talking about family is that one of the big driving forces with the stress management society and in your life with your dad mm. and a little over a year ago we, we lost Raj that has to be the biggest challenge you've had yeah, I, I, I've got to be honest with you, of, of all the things I've experienced, all the emotional challenges I've had to navigate, that was by far the toughest. Um, you know, even everything that happened that led to starting the Stress Mount Society or my divorce um, six years ago, which was a really tough experience to go through. Um, all of those, you know, paling in significance in comparison to, to what happened last year. Primarily because he'd been there through all of those experiences. Every other challenge I've ever faced, he'd been the pillar that was standing behind me, kind of, you know, you know just helping me to get through it. And I didn't even know how to go about living my life without him. Because um, he wasn't just my dad, he was my mate, he was my football buddy, I watched all football with him, he'd be my financial advisor I'd be the person I'd talk to to get advice about everything and when he retired from work a couple of years ago he came and worked with us so he was my work colleague as well and a pretty good one um, so yeah it was uh, it was tough it was really tough and even with everything that I know um, you know I came back from that and I was like yeah I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine and it was literally like I think it was like a couple of days back after like having a bit of time off with my dad where I think I was pretty much sent home because I wasn't fine and mm. ended up like very much sat on my kitchen floor for two weeks in a mess um, and yeah like in, and I'm realizing that actually it's not linear because I'm very much solution focused right there's a problem how do I fix it how do I make it better how do I get out of this and it's not that easy because you expect recovery to be linear and it's not you kind of get to a point where yeah I feel better and then something happens like Christmas comes the first Christmas like damn and you feel like shit again and then you get through that and then you know I went for a couple of months of feeling great and everything was going well and then the World Cup came around and you know my f earliest footballing memories from my dad watching the World Cup in 1982 um, the Spain World Cup and yeah it just brought it all back and particularly England doing really well and like you know his team Liverpool got to the Champions League final all of that's bringing up loads of emotion and that kind of levelled me and then got around to September and it'd be the first year anniversary since he passed and again kind of knocked me down again then it was his 70th birthday and it's just like you think you've dealt with it and you haven't and I think as with all aspects of mental health, people expect that when you had some kind of a mental health challenge that you get better and it's fine and it never happens again. It's kind of, it's always there. And you realize that, you know, when you struggle with these things, it's always there in the background. Those dark thoughts can resurface at any time. So which is why it's really important, like, you know, that we are taking the time to really look after our, our not just our physical health, but our mental and emotional health as well, because if you don't it's just like for example if you've had a heart attack you can't kind of you know eat healthy and do some exercise for a year and then expect to be 
all right for the rest of your life. You go back to the old patterns and habits, then you're going to find yourself back knocking on that door again. And I found myself back there with the darkness of some of my earlier experiences when I went through what I went through last year, where I was like right back there again and like in the depths of some of that darkness, really. The loss of Raj, it must have rocked your outlook, your world outlook. Yeah, it did change things for me. And I, I think he was someone that was very much about giving and contributing and charity. And, you know, he'd come across a cause and be like, all right, yeah, I'm going to make a difference. And there was a school that I did a little workshop for. Um, and they have a large percentage of their students that are mentally or physically handicapped. And I told him about the school, and he was like, oh, I want to help them. And he literally raised 20 grand to rebuild their playground. Um, I remember we did a little project here with a charity called Friend Finder. So my friend Emma Hine, her son Lewis, has, um, had um, a brain tumour, and he's been in that hospital since he was a kid. And they were putting a prom together for kids that are terminally ill. And I told my dad uh, about the little thing that we did with them. And we did it for, we did it from our charitable arm, just as a way of contributing back. So I told, told Raj about it, and he was like, I want to meet them, I want to talk to them. So he did, he did and he called Emma and Lewis, her son, into uh, a meeting with his Lions Club. And yeah, they raised thousands of pounds for, for, for them. And that's just the kind of dude he was. And it was just, for him, it was all about giving and contribution and making a difference. And you know particularly when when he passed away like, the the even in death like got a measure of the kind of man he was because he donated his body to science so it wasn't actually a funeral as such because his, his body was used for all these stories came out as well didn't yeah they? stories about things he'd done people had helped and you didn't know yeah because he never talked about didn't, it hadn't known either so these people rocking up saying yeah raj did this for us like what really yeah. and when when you know when he was um you know, you know, even at the, 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 that little prayer ceremony thing itself, there was like thousands of people. There was a queue out the door. You were there, Duncan. It was mm. just uh, like I couldn't, I didn't know he knew that many people. It was like, I was amazed at how many people rocked up to pay their respects. And people coming on, was oh, when, when, when my sister was in hospital, your dad came and gave some money, or when this happened, or your dad. And I was like, didn't even know. Um, but he had a wicked sense of humor as well. And he was like the cheekiest man I know. And it was just like, you know, there's so much about him that, as I, you know, if I could emulate even 1% of who you were, then uh, hopefully you'd be proud of me. But it was just even like in death, like he still had a, a way of being able to kind of impart his wicked sense of humour. Because obviously being a diehard Liverpool fan, we decided to play um, You'll Never Walk Alone at the prayer ceremony because he would have liked that. And yeah, like I, I kind of lost my shit when that came on and burst into tears. Which just the thought of me crying to you never walk alone, he would have been wherever he was, laughing really hard. But then also now whenever I hear that song, it, I start welling up, which is a bit of a challenge because I'm a Man United fan. So he's still getting a laugh out of this because I can never go to like Old Trafford Anfield to watch, watch a Man United Liverpool game because if I start bursting into tears when that comes on, my own fans will lynch me. And I'm like sitting there thinking, you're loving this, because his biggest regret in life is his two sons are Man United fans. You know, he even named one of his sons, not me. 
um, after yeah. one of his favourite players, Kevin Keegan. My brother has subsequently changed his name by by deep pole, but my um, brother used he, to be Bayview Kevin Sharp. He named you after Neil Diamond. No, he didn't. You he, just made he, that he up. He absolutely did. He told me <laughs> that he named you after Neil Diamond. That's a fact. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Can you edit that bit out? Because I'm absolutely not named after Neil Diamond. Sweet. <laughs> anyway, uh, where were we? So what? So what has this taught you? You have the opportunity now to impart some wisdom to your twenty-ish old self and you're sat there but also you're willing to listen mm. yeah which is a key thing as mm. well don't think that would have happened okay but let's just as soon as we're playing fantasy land you are you the, the your 20-ish your old self is uh is sat there and willing to listen what would you say to yourself hmm if he was willing to listen which he wouldn't have been because he, he, he knew better he knew everything he had it all figured out but if he was willing to listen, the one thing I'd say to him is money doesn't bring success. Success will bring money. But chasing chasing the dollar ain't going to make you happy. Uh, and the more you have, the more you want, and it's empty. It's, it's an addiction. And I guess I, yeah, I, I have an addictive personality. So it would be to really understand who you really are as a person and what's important to you. And follow and pursue that rather than the the superficial goals, which are just going to leave a big empty hole which you can never fill. So let's say let's say you're in the same situation again. You lost everything right now. You know how you reacted to it last time. How how do you think you would respond to it now? Well, interesting. I've I had an opportunity to face that again. Um, not quite. As bad, but almost. Um, when I got divorced, it ended up becoming quite uh, a tough and challenging experience. Um, I think, you know, after the initial crash, it was probably one of the most, uh, second most challenging experience I've had because I was going through trying to sell a property to fund the, the divorce. Um, that was an extremely stressful process. Um, I was having challenges at work. Um, um, and obviously the emotion of, of, of kind of the final steps of that divorce was just, um, a few years ago and also in the process of purchasing the office so this is like you know several big things happen at once what well, they say the most stressful experiences are getting divorced moving house selling property etc it was like several of those happening all at the same time and what was interesting is that the first time it kind of it, you know it leveled me for a while and I got kind of to some really dark places whereas the second time I went through it, yes, it was tough, and I'm not saying I, I sailed through it, but I was able to navigate that with nowhere near as much collateral damage as the first time. So you do get better you uh, dealing with these things. You do get better at recognising your triggers, and you do become more resilient. I think that's the biggest part of this journey, is being able to, to listen to, to recognise and to live my truth. And you don't get it right every day. And, you mess up and you make mistakes, but as long as we can stay true to our path and true to ourselves, then yeah, everything changes. So this has been a retrospective. We've also had a bit of a look at the now. Mm. So where are we going? We're, we're expanding internationally already. We're, we've got a number of big projects starting in the Middle East. Um, so you know we've got operations starting over there. So that's kind of a big focus area for us. But you know now looking at how we can reach a broader audience in you know, locations 
uh, internationally as well as started reaching people in different ways. Um, you know, our big goal has changed. Our big goal used to be to create a happier, healthier, more resilient world. Uh, but how do we know when we've got there? So that's where the secondary goal came up, which is to make ourselves redundant. We actually want to create a world that doesn't need the stress management site anymore. Um, so that's, for me, what the future looks like. We can get to a point where there's no need for us. And not because the species are extinct, because we wiped ourselves out through poor climate practice and the rest of it, but because we found a more sustainable way of being, not just physically, uh, not just environmentally, but mentally, emotionally as well. The way that we live our lives is not sustainable, which is why that we are losing so many people, which is why you know, suicide is the second main cause of death in a 15 to 29 year old globally, because we don't have a sustainable approach to how we live our lives, and that needs to change. And if we can contribute to, to waking people up to their own truth, to living in a more sustainable way, to being more resilient to the challenge of life, and also to, to pay attention to what's important, because a lot of us are sweating the small stuff and living this photoshopped, superficial, artificial existence. So many of us sanitize our lives and we put up an image of ourselves on social media, like everything's all perfect and everything's all wonderful and beautiful and shiny and happy. And actually, a lot of people are really miserable and they don't ever show themselves in truth, in honesty. And if that's what you're seeing around you, you start to feel quite despondent and disengaged when your life doesn't match up to this image of perfection that social media is projecting to you. And I think it's really important that we start showing up in truth and honesty and you know, it's great when people like Rio, for example, when, when his wife passed away, really tragic circumstances, where he was openly talking about his, his struggles with mental health and um, suicide ideation. And I think that's really important when people can see that we all go through this. It's, it's a normal, natural part of life and you're not all alone. You're not isolated. You don't need to pretend like everything's fine because it will get to a point where you get to that stage where you can't handle it anymore. And it's, it's sad for me. I will get a, a call like this every couple of days from someone that's feeling this way. Um, and and they, they, they turn to me because they don't feel they can talk about this, whereas actually we should be more comfortable talking about our mental and emotional state. Thank you, Neil. Uh, thank you for being so honest. If you want more information, then go to stress.org.uk or alternatively go to stressmanagementsociety.com. Uh, visit our Facebook page, uh, go to iTunes and SoundCloud for the life-changing conversations podcast and like subscribe and comment please uh it's one thing downloading it but itunes they like you to rate it and prove that you're a real person thank you neil you're welcome don't get too comfortable in my seat you've been listening to the life-changing conversations podcast with neil shah this podcast was produced by Change Your World Events in collaboration with the Stress Management Society. Like, comment and share and keep the conversation going. Hashtag LCC Podcast. Oh, we'll be healing stress in your area. Helping all types of hysteria. Our workshop's sick like malaria. But don't worry, we'll take care of ya. Booyah!